Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from our listeners. Listeners to this show have kept it alive for six and a half years. If you love the show, please support it. This week, I want to thank Larry and Paul. Thank you so much for becoming supporters on a monthly basis over on patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. I hope you enjoy the bonus episodes and please watch your mailboxes for a handwritten thank you note from us. If you want to support the show, you'll find links in the show notes or just visit thebittersweetlife.net. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Dr. Therese Houston. She received her MS and PhD in Cognitive Psychology from Carnegie Mellon University, and she's completing a postgraduate program at the University of Oxford. And she's the author of three books, Teaching What You Don't Know, and How Women Decide. And now her latest book, Let's Talk, Make Effective Feedback Your Superpower. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Katie. It's really fun to see you. Today, we're going to be exploring how feedback can change our lives for good or for bad. Hopefully for good. Hopefully for good. Exactly. (laughs) So to get started, I think all of us listening and me, of course, we like to think that we are thoughtful people very in command of our decisions and our desires and our effect on other people. But I thought it was so interesting, this statistic that you cited in the book, you wrote, roughly 95% of us think that we have a very high self-awareness when research shows that only 10 to 15% of us do. (laughs) Tell me more. I don't even know what the question is out of that, but tell me. (laughs) Yeah, that's a disturbing statistic, right? Because you immediately wonder, am I fooling myself? Am I in that lucky 10 to 15% that have good self-awareness. So let's take a quick step back. What do I mean by self-awareness? So um, self-awareness is our ability to see ourselves clearly. Do we see ourselves the way other people see us? You know, do you understand how you really fit into the world or are you a little delusional as to your impact and where you stand? The best research on this I've seen is done by Tasha Urich, E-U-R-I-C-H. And she's written this great book called Insight, which is where I get that statistic from. And she has been studying people, she calls them self-awareness unicorns, those rare individuals who really understand where they sit in the world, what place they occupy. As she likes to put it, she says 80 to 85% of us are lying to ourselves about lying to ourselves. We don't even realize (laughs) that we're lying to ourselves, right? Or we lie about it. She found that people who are high in self-awareness are rare in part because we are trying to build up our self-esteem. We want to feel better about where we stand in life. But the people who have accurate self-awareness, who really know where they stand, are more confident. They tend to be higher performers at work. And you can understand that because if you know where you stand and you're honest with yourself about it, you won't be disappointed when things turn out a certain way because you kind of expected it, right? You're less crushed by life's ups and downs. In any case, so she finds that us, that most of us are self-delusional. And I wonder if there's a cultural difference in that. I don't know. I haven't read that if she's reported on that. But I do find it fascinating. I kind of want to find out, am I one of those people, right? (laughs) Yeah, how do we find out? (laughs) How do we find out? Yeah, I should go to Tasha's website and see. She does a lot of research now trying to help people become more self-aware. Her biggest tip, if you want to be someone who's more self-aware, is that you need to stop asking yourself why questions. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So most of us ask ourselves questions like, why did that conversation upset me so much? Uh, why did we fight this morning, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like trying to figure out that we were trying to pinpoint. And she and other researchers have found we're terrible at answering that question. We generate lots of stories that aren't true. And she said, those self-awareness unicorns, the people who are really self-aware, they don't ask themselves why questions. Or if they do ask a, a why question, they immediately change it to a what question. So good examples that she gives, you know, someone who got negative feedback from their boss, instead of saying, why doesn't she see my good work? That person asks themselves, well, what can I do to show her that I'm the best person for this job? Mm. Right. So they move away from the why. And they also are kind of future focused. What can I be doing in the future instead of why did blank happen to me? She found that with breast cancer survivors as well. Breast cancer survivors who asked, why me? Why did this happen to me? Tend to get very depressed. Not surprisingly, right? Mm-hmm. Probably didn't have much control over it. But if they could pivot the question and say, what's most important to me, then they felt re-energized. They reformulated their lives around what matters. So changing the question from why to what is evidently one of the tricks that people who are self-aware use. Mm. It's not obvious why it would be, right? I'm not quite sure. Yeah. So all of us now are thinking, okay, what do I do? Do I ask those why questions? Self-diagnosing whether or not we're one of these people. Exactly. Who is not self-aware. Who's not self-aware, right. And now trying to catch ourselves, like, how can I ask it as a what question, right? But I I found that powerful. But I do fall into the why question all the time. I don't know about you. Yeah, and it's interesting because you'd think that the why question would also indicate some kind of self-awareness, that at least you're contemplating why things happen and you're not just like a bull running through a shop. Exactly. It feels reflective, right? It feels self-reflective, the why question. But she points to this fascinating research study that a team did where they stood in front of a grocery store and they set out four pairs of pantyhose. Now, nobody wears pantyhose anymore, but so it was (laughs) studies a little dated, but they've set out four different pairs of pantyhose and they asked um, shoppers to come up and pick which pair of pantyhose do you like best. Market research already shows that people prefer things on the right. Why? We don't know. And sure enough, people consistently picked the pair of pantyhose on the right. And they would give all these elaborate explanations for like how they felt and like how much elasticity they had and they didn't seem like they would run. When the truth was, it was just the pair of pantyhose that was on the right. They could swap out the pantyhose and people would always pick the ones on the right. So she just points to this as like, we don't know why we do things. We don't really understand what influences us, all the unconscious cues that we're affected by. And so when you go probing your internal, like, why did I do that? It could be something as simple as you prefer stuff on the right, right? <laughs> and you don't, you, you don't like stuff on the left. Who knew, right? I didn't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Boy, that's going to also make me question anytime I'm leaning towards something on the right. So much of this book is about feedback. It's about giving better feedback. It's like how feedback can land in a bad way also. Let's get into feedback and how it can actually help direct what we're doing in life and making decisions. Lay the groundwork for us. Why did you decide that you wanted to research feedback itself and what effect it has on us? Yeah, yeah. I had two inspirations here. One was personal and one was professional. The the professional one is um, I've spent about 19 years helping professors get better at their teaching. I like to say I help good professors become your favorite professors. 
that involves giving them a lot of feedback. And it also involves teaching them how to give feedback to their students. And I've coached lawyers and engineers and nurses and CEOs. I even once coached a Broadway choreographer on how to give feedback to his students while they were dancing, right? I, not something I could do at all, <laughs> right? but I can, I can coach people on how to get better at feedback. What I've realized over the years is that 90% of us have to give feedback in our jobs, but 99% of us aren't trained on how to do it. Mm-hmm. We, we just kind of make it up as we go along. So part of it was this realization that there's a real feedback gap. We don't know how to do it well. And usually the only feedback we see or hear is the feedback we're getting ourselves. And we're not very objective in that moment. It's hard to figure out what that person's doing skillfully. Mm -hmm. So part of it was that professional realization. And then the other part, personally, uh, I had a pivotal moment in my 20s. I guess it was my early 30s now that I think about it. Um, I was getting feedback from my boss. So I was new in a job. It's a year into the job. I went to my boss and asked her for performance review. Let's talk about how the year went. Great. She said, well, you know, I'm really busy. Why don't we go out to lunch? We'll have a nice lunch and we can talk about how your year went. Great. We go out for lunch a few days later. We have a lovely time, but we don't talk about my work at all. We just talk, we talk about our pets. We talk about her husband. We talk about my fiance. It's lovely. It's a great bonding conversation, but we're not hitting my big question. So as we're getting up to leave, I'm like, okay, on the walk back to the office, we've got 15 minutes. I'll ask her for my feedback. And she said, can we stop in the restroom before we go? And I said, sure. And you know what happened? We get into our stalls and she says, Therese, so about your first year. And I'm like, no, 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 this is, this is not the place. This is so, I don't even know who's going to walk in. You know, I can't write any of this down. I mean, there are so many ways this was so unfair, but it made me realize as the feedback recipient, you feel so helpless. I felt like I had to take her feedback the way she was giving it in that moment, Mm -hmm. you know, with my pants down quite literally. Right. (laughs) And, uh, It really made me motivated to write a book that would help feedback givers understand the power that they have and how to use that power more carefully and compassionately so that they can be kinder and and really think about the impact that they're having. Yeah, because you do talk a lot about how if used properly, good feedback can motivate us a lot to, to do better work, to become better people. Tell me more about that. I'm happy to answer, but I'm just curious. Have you had experiences where you were really motivated by someone's feedback? Oh, certainly. Of course. Yeah. 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 You have. For instance, I've been working on, in the last few years, I've been working a lot more on writing. I was a writing major in college, but I got into radio, and so much of my writing now turned into radio writing. Right, right. Writing for the voice rather than writing for the page. But I've been really working hard on getting back to writing for the articles or for a book or whatever. Yes. And I've had some pivotal people, writers that I respect, who have read things that I've written and say, this is very unique. Your voice here is not something I encounter a lot with other students that I've taught before. You have a unique way of saying things. Right. And even just feeling like what I'm offering is different. Yes. And stands out to these people makes you want to keep trying. <laughs> Certainly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and so I hear a couple of things in that story. So thanks for sharing that. So I hear, first of all, um, it's an area where you're trying to grow, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're really motivated to listen because this isn't just something like, oh, this is just a nine to five job for me. No, this is something you want to you you want to get back into, right? You want to do more of, you know, mm-hmm. one of your first loves. It sounds like was writing in college. Um, so it's some it's an area that you care about. So you're personally motivated. Maybe part of your identity is even tied up in this, right? Mm-hmm. In being a good writer, right? That you want to see yourself that way. 
The other thing is you said these were people that you respect, right? And that's an important part of this. These are people whose opinion matters to you. So we're very motivated. When I think about my most impressionable feedback moments, they're people that I thought really highly of. I, I don't even remember. I'm sure I've received feedback from people who I didn't think that much of. I don't even remember those. Those fall away. Mm-hmm. So it's a good thing to think about. What are the areas where you're growing your identity? Like, I want to be seen as blank. I want to be seen as a great chemist. Or I want to be seen as everyone's favorite person to visit. When they come to Seattle, I want them to be like, Seattle's my favorite city. And part of it's because of Therese, right? Whatever whatever my identity might be or the, the ident- identity I want to move into. And then think about who is going to give you that feedback that really lands well. If I ask my mom for feedback on my writing, for instance, I know she's going to love it. I mean, and it's, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's nice to hear. And I respect my mom in a lot of ways, but she's not going to tell me, mm-hmm. she's not, she's not going to be a critical reader. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to be as, I'm not going to be running around the house excited if she tells me that she loves my book the same way that I would be if someone for the New York Times said they loved my book, right? Mm-hmm. So the two things there, seek feedback from someone you really respect, take have the courage to do that, and get feedback in, around an area where you want to grow because you're going to be most invested in hearing that. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, what about people who are not encountering others. Uh, we're all not encountering others as much right now. But so true. but there are people who are retired, so they're not getting feedback in a work way much anymore. Or uh, there are people who work alone at home or, you know, are digital nomads just roaming the globe by themselves. How do we foster feedback in those kinds of situations? Or is it even as important? Yeah, I do still think it's important. Um, there's this great article by Peter Thompson. It was almost a decade year, decade old now. I think it's from 2013 called How 50 Cups of Coffee Can Change Your Life. Have you ever run into this? Are you familiar no. with it now? No. So it's a great article about how whenever he has an important decision to make, he will seek out 50 different people. Now, I don't know if he really is true to 50. It's kind of a huge number, but I'm sure even 20 would be impressive. Um, And he'll ask them for feedback on his idea. And he tries to keep them quick, right? He doesn't make it lunch. He makes it a cup of coffee so that potentially this could be a half an hour. And I thought about how that could translate virtually. You know, you reach out to 20 people on LinkedIn and say, you know, would you have 20 minutes? I'm at a inflection point. And oh, and here's the other critical piece. So you reach out to people in your network and then you ask for advice, not feedback. So there's great research out of Harvard Business School. Um, Jai Won Yoon has found that that one pivotal word, advice versus feedback, makes all the difference. People, when they think they're giving you feedback, they get evaluative and they'll just say, you're fine. You're great. Don't worry about it. You know, they're giving you a grade so to speak, when you ask for feedback. Whereas if you ask for advice, people actually give you actionable, here's what I think you should do. It's a small difference, right? So often we ask for feedback when we're not thinking about it, when what we really want is advice. So reach out, reach out to 20 people in your, you know, in your network saying, I'm at a decision point, I'd love your advice. But that would imply that the process of giving feedback, for instance, this evaluation of other people is so painful that we don't want to have to give feedback to other people. I think so, right? And and we've been in that situation where someone has asked us for feedback and we don't really trust that they want it, right? Mm-hmm. Where someone says to you, well, wh- you know, what do you think I should do? And you're like, Arr! you know, I've had that happen with some of my good friends where they've asked that. And I'm like, you don't really want 
you, you, you just want me to encourage you. You know, you want me to encourage you in the direction you're already headed. Yeah. That can be really tricky when you, uh, the distinction I like to make is between a supportive mirror and an honest mirror. With our friends and family, we often want supportive mirrors. Even if we don't say that, what we really want them to do is reflect back that what I'm doing is the right thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whereas if you can genuinely ask, I want an honest mirror. Um, I, I really want to hear what you think. And I'm, I'm braced for it. Be honest with me. You're, you're one of the few people, and this is, even if this isn't true, it's good to say, you're one of the few people that I believe will be honest with me. So can you tell me what you think? Then people feel they've been elevated and been given permission to actually be honest with you. Hmm. And so that's a strategy that you could use if um, you think that the person is afraid, because we're all, we don't want to hurt our relationships. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're afraid we might hurt the relationship if we're honest. Yeah. 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 Like if you say that guy's no good for you and she's head of our heels, <laughs> that's kind of the first example that a lot of us even as teenagers or something come in contact with. Exactly. Oh my gosh. And I've, you know, I've got a good friend right now who's in the infatuation stage with someone. And there's a part of me that's like, but this is the exact same language you used about the last guy. Would it be helpful for me to say this, right? Because <laughs> the last guy turned out to be a loser. But in the <laughs> early stages, it seemed like this. Anyway, so when it's so hard, because I'm not sure that she wants to hear that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to gauge how can I be I think what she really wants is a supportive mirror. She she wants me to just get excited with her and know that she'll be able to handle whatever comes her way if this doesn't work out. It's interesting because a lot of people who listen to this show are living in a country that they were not born in. Yeah. And if they didn't move to that other country with their parents, say, but they move there by their own choice as adults, as they are leaving, one of the common things that I hear all the time is that... They have a common experience that they'll have people in their lives that will say either, oh, I could never do what you're doing, or it will be some sort of negative feedback. This seems like it could upend your career. This seems like, or whatever it is, it'll be some sort of, really, are you sure you want to do that? So I don't know. It raises the question for me about how do you properly weigh if somebody's giving you feedback like that? whether the person is legitimately saying, I really feel like this is going to ding your life <laughs> and, and right. you will not come back from it versus their own opinions and fears and preferences kind of coming out in whatever they're saying to you. Oh, such a good question. And it's so tricky because particularly if it's an older family member, they, they, you know, they don't want you to take risks. They didn't take risks. They, you know, and so they're projecting potentially, their own risk aversion onto you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I played it safe and it worked out for me. So please, please, I want to make sure you're okay. Um, I guess my advice there would be to reflect on what you already know about that person. And of course, if it's someone you don't know very well, you don't have much data. So I guess two pieces of advice. One, has that person been someone who's usually takes the position of like, no risk, that's a good, that's the right way to go. You know, you'll, you have people in your life who have been in the same job for 30 years and you're just like, okay, that is great for you. It's not for me, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? I need, I need change and you didn't want to take risks and go to a job that might not have dental insurance or whatever <laughs> it might be, right? But to take a look, what's their risk tolerance, right? Because I think that's kind of what you're getting at is what someone's risk tolerance. So that would be, that would be part of it. Mm -hmm. And then I would ask the question, if somebody's offering that advice, like, you know, don't do this, you could be throwing away great career, or, you know. What are you going to do with your house or whatever, whatever they might ask um, is to say, what impact do you think that would have? Ask them to dig deeper. What impact do you think it would have if um, 
we didn't have a house here in the United States. And then you can get into a deeper question of like, but do I need that security? Often there's an interesting story behind the why. And now you can find out why they think having a house is the most important thing. And then you can then you can agree or disagree with that. Does that make sense? Because you're getting away from my decision. Now we're getting into, is, is a house the best investment I can make? Yeah. It seems like from all your research, you have really come to understand how you take a surface conversation and make it deeper. I try. Would you say that's true? I definitely try. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I guess, you know, and that's a skill I know you have. So yeah, I, I would agree with that. Do you have certain strategies that from what you've read or learned or studied of how people do that? I think you'll appreciate this. I really try to be curious. And I think that's also something you do really well, Katie. I'll explain what I mean by being curious because it's so simple to say and it's hard to do. So for instance, um, I've been married uh, 18 years now and I've known my husband for 21 years. So we dated for a few years before we got married. And whenever you're in a long-term relationship, you know you're going to hear the same stories again and again, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and early in my marriage, I was like, how am I going to, you know, I, I'm hoping to have years with this guy. How am I going to tolerate hearing these same stories again and again? And I figured out pretty early on, listen for what's different this time he's telling it. Mm. And be curious, like, what detail is he going to leave out? What detail is he going to add? Does he sound bored when he tells this story to this person, whereas he sounds excited when he tells it to this other person? And I try to listen for that difference, and I'm curious about it. And it makes it makes hearing that story for the 12th or 80th time or whatever so much more interesting because now, because sure enough, he is changing, right, depending on the audience, depending on his mood. And I get to learn something about him as opposed to just tuning out for that part of the conversation. And so I try to I try to do that with other people as well. Obviously, I'm usually hearing their stories for the first time. But I think, at least in the United States, I don't know about other cultures, but we pride ourselves on being able to guess what the person's going to say next. And so it takes really work, a lot of work to be curious as opposed to guessing mm. and showing how much we know. Yes. It did, right? Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's the hazard of the expert interviewer. I teach interviewing classes sometimes and Oftentimes you'll see, you'll go to a show or something, you'll have a person being interviewed by another person who's in the same field. And it really does become this, con- not always, but often becomes this contest between who knows, who knows more. It's not just a person asking questions, it's a person demonstrating their knowledge and maybe throwing a question it at the end. And at the end, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to really wait for the question. Yeah, I yeah. can see that. I had the great experience. I'm doing this program at Oxford, as you mentioned. And on day one of classes, most of the classes have been virtual, but on day one, we were all together. It was last February. And, you know, I'm meeting my 50 different classmates and we do lots of small group work. And so I got to meet lots of them. And there's one person who my conversation with him is so memorable because when he he and I started talking, he said, you're a writer? I've never met a writer before. Tell me about your very favorite workday. What happens on your favorite workday? And he was genuinely curious about me. Lots of other people said, oh, you write. What is it like to write, right? But it was very clearly polite when they asked that question. Whereas when he asked, he really wanted to know, like, what do you do on your favorite workday? He's in mergers and acquisitions. He like had such a far distant life from me. And I loved my conversation with him because he was curious and I could I could spot what he was giving me, right? This gift of curiosity, hmm. as opposed to so many other people are like, oh, writing is hard. I can't believe you'd ever go into that. You know, and you're like, okay. <laughs> true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> what can I say? Except you're right. It is hard. <laughs> but I feel like that's a, con- you know, it's demonstrating how much they know about writing as opposed to my work 
world of writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. It's funny, actually, that reminded me that I met President Obama before he was president, back actually before he even decided, well, he probably had decided, but he had not declared that he was going to run yet. We were thinking he was going to, but he was not admitting it. Uh (laughs) And that's one of the things I remember about him. In fact, it was kind of a problem that day because I was the producer who only had him for 30 minutes. And so I had to like keep brushing staff off and being like, get away. I got to get him to the studio. I've got no time. But I do remember that he would always say, oh, uh, you're a producer. What does that mean you actually do? What is your job like? And he would just ask that to anybody (laughs) that he passed. That's great. Oh, and, and, you know, it's it's so engaging. And I hear he's very charming. So maybe that might be part of his charm is that he's genuinely curious. Well, and I think it's hard to be curious. You know, we've already touched upon the fact that we're all trying to demonstrate our expertise. But also with the Internet, I have a question. Like I was just talking about Japan with someone yesterday. And they mentioned Nara, which was a town I'd never heard of. I only had to be curious about NARA for about like eight seconds because I just look it up on my phone, right? Like we immediately have answers available to us all the time. So staying curious is hard. We aren't very practiced with it. Hmm. We just immediately find out the answers to our questions. So anyway, I think I think it's it's a skill we need to practice. So a quick aside, Tiffany joins me. Hey, Tiffany. Hey. Thanks for joining me. I, I didn't want you to want to go through this episode without being able to talk to you about this book that I'm reading. I had no idea you were black by Ronald Crutcher, Dr. Ronald Crutcher. And I know you have the week off technically with the show, but I knew you'd want to hear about this. Of course. So, of course, we've been talking this whole show about feedback and the power of those relationships and this great book, um, which talks about bridging racial divides um, by offering Ronald Crutcher's very compelling personal story, along with other just general lessons for life that we can all learn from him. One of the sections that fits right in with the topic that we're talking about today, he has a whole section that's about different lessons, where it's like lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, but lesson three fits right in. And lesson three is build a network of developmental relationships, which sounds very heady, but really when it comes right down to it, it's about mentoring. So can I read you um, just a paragraph or so from here? Sure. All right, he writes, One of the keys to spiraling upward in any profession is mentoring. Not only do mentors provide advice and support, they can play a significant role in personal and professional development, particularly early in your career. But must a mentor be someone that you can relate to because they share your background or style? Not necessarily. None of the mentors who played significant roles in my life were black men. So... How do you find a mentor? That's exactly what I was going to ask. How do you find one? (laughs) I know. Not by waiting around for an invitation. Most mentors do not go hunting for mentees. You must seek them out. You must be proactive. And most importantly, you must present yourself in such a manner that potential mentors will be attracted to assisting you on your journey. So, of course, he goes on. There's more details in here than that. I'm just whetting your appetite. I wish I'd read this when I was in in the early part of my career. Yes, it could have helped. I mean, I, I still kind of am in the early part of my career <laughs> as an author anyway. <laughs> yeah. I'd say in the early part of my life. <laughs> well, and I think the idea is, of, of course, we could look for these mentors at any time. Right. Whenever you're making a change. Mm-hmm. I've certainly had quite a few mentors myself, and I have been the mentor to several people as well. Have you ever been a mentor? I don't think I have, except for maybe when I was a much younger person mentoring like a child. Babysitting. Not babysitting. But no, not as a, not professionally, not that I can think of. I mean, maybe if I have done, it's been accidental and not necessarily noticed by me, but I have always been happy to share any 
knowledge that I have. I mean, I'm always happy to do that. But finding a mentor is true. That's the bigger challenge. Yeah. And having the courage to approach them as well. Well, since this is kind of an aside from even that, but since we've been talking about feedback in this interview with Therese that we're about to go right back to, but you're here right now. Have you ever received a piece of feedback that was extremely helpful? I mean, I had a lot of brilliant nuggets from my my first voice teacher, who was an incredible, incredible, brilliant woman named Edie Delegans. I don't think she listens to the podcast, but anyway, I'll give her a shout out. What's one example of something she told you? One example is that she told me as a young singer, never believe that you're as bad as they tell you and never believe that you're as good as they tell you. <laughs> That's good. Keep humble, but also believe in yourself. Love that. Well, the book is I Had No Idea You Were Black by Dr. Ronald Crutcher, Navigating Race on the Road to Leadership. There is a link in our show notes that will take you directly to where you can order this book. All right. Yeah. And back to Therese. So since so many of us are either fascinated by travel or have dreams of living in another country or currently do live in a different country than where we were born, it's weird to think about feedback or curiosity when you're doing things cross-culturally. Are there certain hazards that arise when you're operating in a culture that's not your own? So cross-cultural feedback, especially negative feedback, can be really hard because different cultures have different expectations and appetites for feedback, at least how direct they expect the feedback to be. There's this great book by Erin Meyer called The Culture Map. Have you ever, are you familiar with this book, The Culture Map? No. So she, she covers different cultural differences and puts countries on spectrums. One of the chapters is, is putting countries on a spectrum of how direct feedback is. And the U- United States conveniently comes right in the middle of the, of the spectrum, right? Right. <laughs> and, and then to the left, we have countries that are much more direct. And the Netherlands is, a, is one of the countries at the, at the extreme end. The Dutch are really, really direct. And then to the right of us, the British are less direct with their feedback. And then you keep moving down and you get to Japan is, is at the far end. Asian cultures are more at the far right they're less direct. So this becomes really tricky because two people can say the same thing, but if they're from different cultures, they mean very different things. So I'll give you an example, Katie. So if I were to say something like, hmm, let's say you just presented an idea to me, okay? You presented an idea to me and my response is, hmm, why don't you think about that some more? So how would you take that? If I said that, hmm, how would you think, why don't you think about that some more? How do you interpret that? I would feel like you're telling me that I was ill-prepared. Ah, there you go. Right. Like I hadn't formulated the idea enough. Yes. Right, right. Okay, good. So that that put that's like right in the middle of the US. Like you're not quite telling me the whole thing. You're trying to be polite. There's there's more than what you're saying behind it. If I were Dutch and I were saying that, I would mean exactly what I'm saying. Like there's potential in your idea. Flesh it out some more and come back to me is basically what I'd be saying. In the UK, if someone were British and saying that, there's a very good chance that what they're saying is that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Go back to the drawing board, right? But they're, but they're saying it as, you know, why don't you give it some more thought, which is really going to cross it out. But this is so hard because we don't, if you, if you don't know about these differences in directness, in terms of how critical someone is going to be to your faith, it really gets confusing. So I find this book really helpful when I'm, I'm, I'm working with people across cultures. It doesn't explain everything, but it does explain a little. I have a, I have a colleague who's British. It's very funny. I, before I'd read this book, 
we would often have conversations where he would say to me, you know, you know, at the start of that meeting this morning, you were, you, you weren't as clear as you usually were. And I come back with a really negative statement. I would say, oh my gosh, were people lost from minute three? Is that what you're saying? Like, and he'd be like, no, no, maybe not from minute three, but maybe, maybe starting at like minute 10. (laughs) (laughs) And so we would play this back and forth where he'd say something very mild. I would say something very extreme. And then he would put himself in the middle of those two extreme points. And it worked. It was fun, first of all, Mm -hmm. but I got more accurate feedback from him from doing that. And I think he works with some people who just take his feedback at face value. And he's really frustrated because they don't understand he's really giving them critical feedback but he says it in such a delicate way, you, re- you really have to be looking for it. So um, it can be tricky. It can definitely be tricky. Another thing that you write in the book is that for feedback to work, it can't just come from a good place. It has to land well. And I actually have two questions about that. One, how do we know if it lands well? And two, how do we learn to do that, to give feedback that doesn't just come from a good place, but actually gets through? Yeah. It is tricky. So on the first one, how do we know if it lands well? You know, the skill in both of those cases, we have to be better at perspective taking. We have to be looking for how the other person is, is hearing the message. A thing that I like to do, especially during COVID, if I'm giving feedback either virtually or over the phone, is to say, you know, what do you hear me saying? Or what what part of this message are you going to take away from this conversation? What are, what are you getting from this? Because it gives people a chance to clarify. So it's good in any feedback conversation, but it's especially good I'm finding during COVID where, where you have fewer cues. Mm-hmm. When we're not in the same room, I, I have less information to go off of as to how you're taking something. So I, I just ask directly, what are you hearing from this? How is this landing for you? I even ask that. And people will say, gosh, um, it's hard to admit, but I'm I'm really discouraged. And I'll be like, okay, all right. I'm not saying you're terrible at this work. I'm just saying right now, I don't think you have the bandwidth that you normally have or whatever. I get a chance to clarify, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I ask people pretty directly. And how do we get better at making sure that it lands well? It pays off to invest in perspective taking. And so by that, I mean, you need to get better at understanding what the other person's perspective is. So part of it's asking those questions. But the other thing that you can do, even without being that direct, is when you're having a conversation with someone, test yourself. Try to guess, just this is a good practice, try to guess, first of all, what's most important to this person in this conversation, and two, how do they feel about this conversation? And if you start practicing this, you'll get better at looking for different cues as to what's important to them and how they feel about it. And it really makes you, first of all, a better listener, but it'll also help you gauge, is this feedback landing well or not? It's something that I practice in my conversations, and I've gotten a better listener as a result. It's interesting, too. I was so surprised in your book to read how a conversation that goes poorly, either in the workplace, I mean, you mostly emphasize the workplace, but probably also at home, if feedback or or some kind of conversation lands poorly, it can ding a person's work abilities. For you were saying as much as a year, like they could slow down and be unmotivated for a really long time. A really long time. Yeah. In my surveys, I interviewed people or I surveyed people about their most demotivating and discouraging feedback experiences, which is kind of a depressing topic, but you know, usually people have one, at least one horror story. And um, about 30% of people said that they were discouraged and demotivated for a month. But then there was a percentage, I can't remember if it was like seven or 8% were demotivated for an entire year. So, you know, that's a long time, you know, and I know I, I had at least one really demotivating feedback experience, which discouraged me 
from pursuing something for about three years. And I'm not kidding. I just like, I'm not going to go down that path anymore, even though I want to. So um, I think we've been, we, we can all relate to this idea of something just like becoming a roadblock and we can't get past it. Yeah. Do you want to share that story? Oh, sure. Yeah, I can share that story. <laughs> like, is it too traumatic to recount it for us? No, no, no. I've gotten past it. Thank goodness. I was... I just gotten my first real job offer. It was after graduate school and the job was in Philadelphia. I was so excited about this job offer. Although I wasn't sure I wanted to move to Philadelphia because it seemed really gritty and it had a high crime rate at that time. I think it's improved, but at the time it had a high murder rate and that's scary for any young woman moving to a new city by herself. And um, so I went to my advisor um, to ask, should I take this job? And it was affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania. So it was an Ivy League school. It was so prestigious. I was so excited. And I went into my advisor to say, you know, am I going to be okay in Philadelphia? Do I just need to find the right neighborhood? Right. I'm all focused on the city. And she's being very quiet and kind of chewing on her lip. And at some point she says, I don't think you should take this job. And it has nothing to do with the city. You can't write. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And she said, I don't know what your problem is. I don't know if it's confidence or perfectionism or what, but this job is going to be mostly writing and I think you're going to be miserable if you take it. And then I started to cry <laughs> because this was this was so shameful of me. You know, she had never said anything like this before. I was so embarrassed and she softened. She's like, I want you to be happy, Therese. I don't think you're going to be happy if you take this. Maybe you can learn to write, but you don't write well yet. You've got to figure that out if you're going to take this job, because otherwise you're just going to be miserable in it. And I like slunk away from that conversation crushed. I went in so hopeful, like I've got the, the perfect job offer. And she was right. I, I didn't know how to write yet. I wish she had coached me in how to get better at writing. I don't think she felt she had that skill set to do that. Um, but I stayed away from writing for like three or four years after that because that conversation was so crushing to me. Obviously, I figured it out because I now write. Yeah, three <laughs> <Right>. books. <laughs> <laughs> three books, exactly. There's a happy ending. I, I subsequently had someone sit down with me and tell me that I write beautifully and she was willing to coach me and how to get even better at it. But I needed both of those conversations. You know, someone might say I didn't need that first conversation, but I would I would have been miserable in that job. You know, she she helped me dodge a bullet there. So it's both good and bad. That's strange. Yes. That makes me want to ask, do people give women feedback in a very different way than they do men? They do. That, that conversation with that advisor was unique because um, actually there's a lot of data showing that people tend to give women more vague feedback. They tend to give them platitudes like your work is great or Katie, just keep up the good work or no, no news is good news. Right. Um, and they'll sometimes do that with men. But the data shows men are more likely to be given specific feedback on their impact. So whereas women will be told, you know, you just need to show a little more curiosity, which sounds specific, but their male peers are being told you need to show more curiosity in your first meeting with a new client. That's so much more actionable. Now I know where to show more curiosity, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And men are more likely to get that kind of feedback than women are. There are a lot of ways in which there's gender bias in feedback and, and there's growing data to show it happens across industries and in technology and law and medicine um, in a lot of different fields. Is there bias race-wise? Yeah, yeah. And there's less data there. 
And I don't think that's because there's less bias, unfortunately. Um, I, I think it's just that it's researchers haven't been looking at it. So the race, the, the data that is there on racial bias and feedback, the most prominent pattern, and they found this in both the United States and in the UK, are the two countries where it's been studied, is that when managers are giving feedback to their white employees, they tend to praise them on their competency saying things like, you're a really skilled interviewer, Katie, you know, you ask great questions, you're very analytical, but you're also very personal, right? I'm talking about all your competencies, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas when um, managers tend to give feedback to their black employees, they tend to focus on their personal qualities, their social skills. So that would be me telling you, you know, Katie, you're just so nice. You know, you make me very comfortable and you're pleasant to be around. I mean, it's nice to hear, Sure. But who's going to get promoted? So what do we do if we know that? Ah, yes. <laughs> you, you know, you want to be promoted. And yet, I'll just for simplicity's sake, you're a woman. And so you you get all this vague leadership. What do you do? So the advice that I give, and because it's hard to ask if you're getting vague praise, it's hard to say, yeah, but what do you really like about my work? What do you love about what my exactly story <laughs> that I did? <laughs> exactly. Tell me all the details of how great it was specifically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it really sounds, you sound so needy. And that's already a way that women are portrayed, which is yeah. definitely not a helpful direction to go in with your boss. So two pieces of advice that I give women or anyone who feels they're getting vague feedback, also uh, racial minorities or underrepresented groups, is to do one of two things. One, say to your boss, okay, I'm, gra I'm glad to hear I'm doing great. Glad to hear you don't have any concerns. But here are the three things I'm thinking about working on. Which of these is most important to you? Where do you want to see me put my most effort? Now you've really given your boss to get super specific. And you're basically saying, I'm going to put more energy into one of these. So often your boss will come up with now a fourth thing that's entirely not on your list. But it, by giving your boss permission to get really specific, your manager can now say, okay, Katie, here's the one thing, right? If you're going to do anything, I hear you taking this seriously. Here's what I would have you do. So that's really helpful. And I've, I've talked with a number of managers who said, oh my gosh, I wish my employees would do that because it would show me how serious they were about it. And then the other piece of um, advice that I give if you think you're getting vague, vague feedback from your manager is to say, I'm glad to hear that everything's going well, but in my last performance review, you know, I just got a four out of five. So tell me, what's a five doing differently? Now your manager is kind of really, if they've, they're experienced at all, they have to think back, okay, okay, I have had, a, I have had some fives. What did they do differently? But again, you're, you're giving them permission to get really specific. Most managers will kind of flail around a little bit, but if you can say, it's okay, can we come back to this next week? Because I really want, I'd like to be a five. I think I have five potential, right? <laughs> and, and your manager can be like, okay, this is, you're, because you're now problem solving together, right? It's not so much about me, me, me. It's more like, you've seen people excel. Tell me what they're doing. Interesting. I feel like I could talk to you for forever. Well, the book is called Let's Talk, Make Effective Feedback, Your Superpower. Dr. Therese Houston, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Katie. It's a real treat to be here. It's good to see you again. We've known each other in the past. We have. We have. I feel lucky to be in your sphere. Yes. Thank you so much. We're going to be giving away a copy of Therese's book this week. Her book, Let's Talk, it's totally free to enter to win. Just follow us on social media. You can pick Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or all three. Just look for The Bittersweet Life podcast, and Tiffany will let you know how to throw your hat in the ring this week. You can also enter by subscribing to our monthly newsletter. 
Once a month, we write and let you know the news of the show, what we're reading, what we're thinking about, that and more. Just send us your email address through social media or by email at bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can just use the contact us section at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. And one more thing, if you have a business or an idea that you'd like to promote, something wonderful that you think our listeners would love, we are accepting sponsorships. Just write to us to get the conversation started. Like I said, you can reach us at bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com or just search for sponsorships at thebittersweetlife.net. Links for all of this are in the show notes. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thank you.